Thanks, Bev, very much for that telling. Um, she told me how um, scary it was saying it this morning in front of several hundred. Uh, well done, you. And although it's a, a fictional account, the person that she's talking about isn't recorded in scripture anywhere, the characters she's referring to are, and the story stands on the foundation of the gospel narrative. And I'd just like to read you the gospel narrative for that piece as it's recorded in Luke's uh, gospel, chapter 23. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put a cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. And Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep rather for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore, the breasts that never nursed. And they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place of the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And the people stood watching. And the rulers even sneered at him and said, Ha! He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. And the soldiers also came and mocked him. And they offered him vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was a notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly. We are getting what our deeds deserve. This man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, over the past five weeks, we've had five encounters. Five encounters with Jesus, which took place in the weeks leading up to today. We've looked at Mary who adored him, Judas, who betrayed him, Peter, who denied him, Thomas, Philip, and Thaddeus, who struggled to understand him, and last week, Pilate, who abandoned him to protect his own interests. It all seems a very long road downhill, away from Mary's love through deceit, denial, doubt and duplicity until tonight we reach 
Golgotha and Jesus' encounter with death itself. When I was writing my poetry covering the narrative of all four Gospels, the Gospels in harmony, I wrote two poems seeking to try and capture the events of this particular weekend. I'm going to read one here at the beginning and one at the far end of this short reflection. And this one is called Golgotha's Moment. I'll let you do that. I'll try and remember that you're following me. Thank you. Dressed in mockery, crowned in pain, anointed with the spit of scorn and flayed within an inch of death. The maker of the universe endures for pity's sake before the nightmare path to Golgotha. There, in the place of honor, at his left and right, two sinners whose tragedy is bound into the passion of the king and man's unseen redemption. Soldiers dice with death beneath his bleeding feet as doubters sneer and women weep and heaven darkens, nailed in the hinge of time. And it was right here in what I called the hinge of time, which is that pivotal moment. It stands in the history of the entire universe, right at the center. And it divides the old covenant of the law from the new covenant of grace. And Christ at that hinge point, at the point of death. Here, at that point, the last of the final encounters of this teaching series takes place. It's an encounter between Christ and the criminals on either side of him. One on the left, one on the right. I don't know about you, but the reference to the left and the right puts me in mind of that moment on the road as Jesus approached Jerusalem for the final time. Of course, nobody knew other than Jesus that it was the final time. And it's recorded in both Matthew and Mark's Gospels. It's that point where James and John come to Jesus and ask if they can sit on thrones, one on his left and one on his right. I know you remember, Karina. I remember you telling the story. Matthew says, can, I, can we sit on your left and on your right when you come into your kingdom? Mark says, when you come into your glory. And Jesus' reply points forward and point forward to his coming crucifixion. You don't know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup? I am to drink, or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. And it's an obscure answer at that time. Reading it just on its own, it doesn't seem to make any sense. But the cup which Jesus drinks 
is the cup which contains the sins of the entire world. It's a cup which contains the sins over all of time, all of history, all of the future, until Christ comes again. Is it any wonder that when he begs his father in Gethsemane, he says, take this cup from me. And yet, Christ even there in the dark knows that God's will, his Father's will, be done. And thus what you have here at this moment on Good Friday is a direct reversal of that bid for power by James and John. Instead of power, we find two powerless criminals, one on his left and one on his right, both dying as Christ comes into his glory. And it's a glory that the world nor the powers of Satan had the slightest understanding about. Bev in her story, telling of the events of the crucifixion from the imagined perspective of the wife of the thief on Jesus' right, says at the beginning of her story, I'm a follower of the carpenter. I belong to the fellowship. Anyone can be. It doesn't matter what Josh was. And although that's just a story, it's also the most beautiful truth. Anyone can be a follower of the carpenter. Anyone, me included. Throughout Jesus' time on earth, the truth that God welcomes everyone is declared in every encounter. We've had five. This one makes six. There are hundreds more. Shepherds, foreigners, the beggars and the blind, the lepers and the lame, outcast women, children, taxmen, fishermen, Jews, Gentiles, the dying and the dead. All are welcome in his kingdom. All stand equal before his throne. It doesn't matter what sins lie in the past. It doesn't matter what wrongs we've done today. It doesn't matter what wrongs we'll do tomorrow. As we turn to Christ, his grace is enough. His forgiveness is total and eternal. His love rights every wrong. His spirit conquers everything, including death itself. In my Lent reflection booklet, or the things that appeared on Facebook for the last 40 days, today's reading had a short prayer by a priest called Jean Vanier. And it's a prayer of love. And I was very, very struck when I read that prayer, when assembling the material, about the power of Vanier's love. And it just poured into that prayer. It was so rich. It was almost, it was almost too much. You couldn't, you sort of made you stagger 
under the power of his sense of love. John's gospel does the same thing. It's so rich in love. And I use the term, you could call this day Love Friday, if the word was properly understood. But it would probably get all the wrong meanings today. So Good Friday it is. But God's Love Friday is an equally good term. The criminal on Jesus' left hurls insults. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. And it's the criminal on the right who rebukes him. Don't you fear God? You and I are under the same sentence. We are punished justly. We are getting what our deeds deserve. He's done nothing wrong. And I think of myself before I came to faith. And so much of that seems true. I would get what I deserved. My sense of God was one dominated by a sense of justice. I would get what my sins deserved. And when I came to faith in 1997, all of that changed. Utterly, completely, forever. The criminal on Jesus' right says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Again, it, it echoes the ambition of James and John. But now it hasn't got any pretension, any worldly ambition at all. It hasn't got any pride. It's just a prayer. And Jesus answers just our prayers. That's what he blesses us with. I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. And this dying man, at that moment, had more faith, not just than the fellow on the left, but he had more faith than all of Jesus' disciples put together. Their dreams of a Messiah were all shattered. They were all in hiding. Peter, the most outspoken, ashamed, broken, the last we'd heard running away in tears. As one of Jesus' followers said two days later, we had hoped he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. In amazing contrast, this man on Jesus' right, hanging on a cross, moments away from death, can see beyond that. He can see beyond this world. And he can see Christ's coming glory. His choice at that moment was to believe. His choice to believe. And that's the same choice. It's the same choice we all have. We have it every day. Here, now, in this moment. Choose to believe in the grace of God for ourselves or not. It might be, I don't know, whether this is the first time you ever come to a place where someone has said, this is the time to choose. But it is. In the same way as there's another time in the past 
and there'll be another time in the future. But this is the time to choose. And this may be your first time to choose. It may be a time when you feel, I actually just want to renew my faith. I want to reaffirm my faith. And Good Friday is a great time to do that. In either situation, do you know your choice matters? It really does. You see, Jesus loves you too much to go riding roughshod over the top of your choice. It's your choice to choose to love him. And Jesus will wait for you to choose. He invites you and he stands and waits. So on this Good Friday, I want to invite you to join me in a prayer of acceptance of Jesus' love. I'm going to pray this sort of out loud, if you'll forgive me. But could I ask you, just bow your own heads and be still before God for a moment. Lord, I believe you are the Son of God that you died on a cross to rescue me from sin and death and to restore me to the Father. I choose now to turn away from my past and my sins, my self-centeredness and everything that doesn't please you. I choose you. I give myself to you. I receive your grace and forgiveness and ask you that you take your place in my life as my Savior and my Lord. Reign in me. Fill me with your love and your life. Help me to become a person who truly loves, a person like you. Restore me, Jesus. Live in me. Love through me. Thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And it is my deepest hope and prayer that such simple words are powerful and meaningful for you this evening. And if it is the first time you've ever prayed a prayer like that, would you come and say so to me afterwards? Because I'd love to know if that was so. And I would love to pray with you before you go home. So Good Friday is a day of remembering the love of Christ. It's a love that brought him to the cross. What we're going to do now is we're going to celebrate communion as part of that. And it's a time where we're going to share the taking of bread and the juice in the very way that Jesus asked us to remember him until he comes again. And this invitation to come and share in this act of remembering is for everybody here who, just like the criminal on Jesus' right-hand side, chooses to believe in Jesus. And if you've made that choice, even just now, even just two minutes ago, communion is for you. 
There isn't any further qualifying rite. There are no special rituals. We come to this table by faith alone. And tonight we've been recalling the events of that first Good Friday. It's striking to think that that was the very last time people thought they would see Jesus alive. They thought that was the final encounter. So they thought. But you know, the amazing thing is that our deeper delight is in the knowing that it wasn't and isn't the final encounter. Jesus isn't dead. <laughs> and in two days' time, we're going to come back here, God willing, and celebrate the resurrection wonder of Easter morning. And I don't want to, in, I don't intend in any way to steal any of the delight of that Easter Sunday morning that awaits us. But equally, I don't want us to go home on Good Friday night down in the spiritual doldrums, which would be easy to do, wouldn't it? We are blessed. We are blessed to live in the sure and the certain truth of the resurrection. So, as I said at the beginning, I had two poems to read, one at the beginning and one at the end, and I'm going to read the end one. It comes from the same book. This is based on Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John 20, all got hold of together, and it celebrates that first Easter morning, and its title is Sunrise. They caught that bright new morning Sun's splendor rising and the first rays dawning of these latter days, where sin is overwhelmed by grace and death itself has lost its place until that final day. And there in the garden weeping, tears of bitter mourning and love songs yearning for the master's gaze, his voice breaks through that veil of tears and grace replaces darkest fears to sing his highest praise. Sunrise is coming.